and I called his phone and he didn't answer. I called the store and he didn't answer. So I immediately got in my car, drove to his work, and I remember when I turned on the road, I remember praying to God, Lord, please do not let his car be there in hopes that he had just left his phone or something, you know, simple like that. But sadly, as I went down the road, I could start seeing lights. And the closer I got, when I pulled in the parking lot, I pulled up to a crime scene. And it, and I'll never forget that day, that night, as long as I live. Marianne Donovan is the Victim Outreach Director for Marcy's Law for Tennessee. She also serves as District Director for Congressman David Kustoff, Representative for Tennessee's 8th Congressional District. And she's married to District Attorney General Michael Donovan, who serves as the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Tennessee. She joins us right now on our Mid-South Viewpoint program. Marianne, how are you doing on this, uh, well, as we record, a beautiful day? It is such a beautiful day, and thank you. I I will note that I no longer work for the congressman, and only because I left a job that I love in order to pursue a passion that I love more. And so, um, but I'm happy to be here with you today to talk about that. We're going to talk about this new passion that you have for Marcy's Law. Why don't we just recap a little bit of the highlights of your time working with Congressman Kustoff? Absolutely. I was his district director, and um, he covers a 15-county area, and, you know, I I loved being able to travel through that district and be able to hear from people on the ground about what issues are affecting them and what issues they care about so that I could then translate that through the congressman back to D.C. And so it was a great job, and I feel blessed that I was able to do it for the three years that I was with his office. Your husband, Michael, has been a guest here on this program in the past, in the studio. It's always a pleasure to have him here, talk with him on various issues. Listen, he is such an advocate for our entire state and for our entire nation. When it comes to public safety, I promise you, you will not find anyone more passionate and more um, dedicated than Mike Benevent. He says that God made him good at one thing, and so he gives it everything he has, and I'm proud to have him there. Wow, that's a good word. Well, how are the Dunavents coping with this COVID-19 and this stay-at-home orders and quarantine time and no toilet paper on the shelves at the stores? (laughs) You know, I have to brag on myself for a second. I'm the girl that typically... Because we live such busy lives, I'm the girl that kind of goes and buys in bulk anyways. And so when this all went down, I typically will buy those items, you know, once or twice a year so that through the year when we're busy, I don't have to think about it. And so I kind of had already stocked up before (laughs) it was a popular thing to do. You already prepared, Marianne. Yeah, and Mike was like, you know what? Now I'm never going to say anything about all the stuff that we have ever again. So we are blessed in our house. But I will tell you, I shared with others and did the right thing. And for those who were in need, like hand sanitizer and Clorox, we gave away almost everything in our home for those who needed it more than us. Well, thank you for not being a hoarder, Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> I was not. No. If someone was sick or more vulnerable, yes. I certainly felt like they needed it more than us. And so we shared. Hey, I want to take you back to 2006, the time you first met Chris. You quickly fell in love. I want you to give us some backstory. Where were you and how did this knight in shining armor show up in your life? You know, we probably don't have enough time for me to talk about how important he was to me because I grew up in a world that was that was hard. I had a, a mother that I loved, but she was 
married four times and divorced four times. And so we had a lot of, I had a lot of men in and out of my life. I went to 13 schools in 12 years and there was just constant change. And so I struggled trusting people in a, in a sense of trusting them with my heart. And so when I met Chris, he was probably like the first real nice, genuine guy that I felt connected to in a way where I was comfortable giving him my trust. And he said to me one time, and I'll never forget it, because I think he felt me putting up those walls. And he said, Marianne, we don't put up walls to keep people out. We put up walls to see who cares enough to knock them down. He said, when are you going to learn that I'm not going anywhere? That hit me so hard. And in that moment, I decided to trust that this man was never going to leave me like every other man had done in my life. Then, sadly, um, after knocking down those walls and trusting that he would never leave me, someone came into our life and forced him to break his promise. And at 35 years old, I was left feeling abandoned all over again, even though it wasn't his fault, I still had the feelings. And Marianne, it was back on October the 26th, 2007, a year later, that Chris asked you to marry him, but that was shortly before he was supposed to close the restaurant where he worked. Something happened that night. I I say it's the best day and the worst day of my life, and that is real, even though we had talked about it so many times, and we had traveled the month before to see his family because before we had made the announcement that we were going to get married, we wanted to spend time with all of them. And so on that day, after we had traveled to see family and we had talked about it, he that morning he said, I'm ready. I want to be married to you. And, and we looked at rings together, and it was such a great day. And then he went to work. And later that night, um, I was asleep, and I literally said he was supposed to be home at like 11, and I sat up in the bed And I just had this panic moment. I looked at my phone, and it was only 10.20, but he hadn't called. He hadn't texted like he would normally do to let me know that he would be home soon. Um, And it just felt different. And I called his phone, and he didn't answer. I called the store, and he didn't answer. So I immediately got in my car, drove to his work. And I remember when I turned on the road, I remember praying to God, Lord, please do not let his car be there in hopes that he had just left his phone or something you know, simple like that. But sadly, as I went down the road, I could start seeing lights. And the closer I got, when I pulled in the parking lot, I pulled up to a crime scene. And it, and I'll never forget that day, that night, as long as I live. Yeah, it was Chris and another co-worker, Josh, who were shot in the back of the head as they both laid face down. I think at that time, Chris was 33, Josh was only 18. And you discovered that in a horrific way, what had happened when you drove up to that restaurant? I got out of my car and just went running towards the door trying to get to him. And um, and I, I remember someone walking towards me that was familiar. And I could just see the look on his face, told me everything I needed to know. And I said, please tell me that Chris is okay. And he shook his head. And I just broke. I mean, like I'm in a parking lot. I'm by myself. I, I'm being given all of this tragic information. And I didn't know how to process it. I just remember calling Chris's parents in that moment and uh, calling my parents and just screaming and crying because I didn't, I was in shock and, and they just kept saying, you know, you need to go home. You need to have somebody take you home. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I leave? I mean, 
he's in there and I felt like he needed me to be in there with him and they just they wouldn't they wouldn't let me. It was hard. Marianne, had you never been a victim of crime before that night? Not like that. I have been a victim of a crime as my purse was stolen or my house was broken into. And interestingly enough, having your house broken into, you don't think about that being traumatic. But, you know, when you walk into your house and it's just torn up and everything's gone through, I think I didn't sleep in my house for two weeks because I just felt like I I didn't feel safe. The one place I was supposed to feel safe no longer felt safe. Oh, yeah. Now the one person who made me feel safe in the world was gone. And so I didn't feel safe in the world for a long time after Chris died, especially with him dying in such a tragic way. I remember it was a long time before I could go into a restaurant without fearing that someone was going to come in and rob it, or I couldn't listen to the radio because it would take me back to a moment that was with him and it was just too painful to live. And um, no, not like that. And I, I always tell people who fight for something you know, they fight for the other side. And I'm like, you know, I pray to God that you never go through this. Mm. Because when you do, that's when you're going to realize I was fighting for the wrong thing. Marianne, I don't want to in any way discredit the pain that you felt at the moment that you realized that Chris had been horribly murdered the way he was. Uh, the obvious elephant in the room for our listeners right now, who mostly are Christians and follow instruction from Scripture regarding life, and in this case, marriage, Living together apart from marriage is contrary to Scripture and the will of God. Now, some would argue that that's archaic and behind the times, but as someone who is a Christian and now married as you are, how do you process that element of defining who a victim is as it relates to the Marcy's Law? That's such an interesting point that you bring up, because I now live a very different life, and Mike and I— chose to do things a completely different way. I didn't move until we were getting married, and I didn't move in with him until we were married. And so um, I, looking back, because I don't condone it in any way now, I think we learn as we get older. And I do think that, sadly, my childhood taught me um, things that, I, I, you know, until I got older and could make decisions for myself, I probably didn't even understand. But now I kind of feel, as I had to process things, that the Lord allows us to go through things. This is what my, where my healing came from. God doesn't bring on this pain. God doesn't choose for us to, to suffer, but God allows us to go through it because it's free will. Free will did this to me, not God. But God allowed me to go through it because He wanted me to do something with it. And so I kind of look back and think, I was put in that position and allowed to go through that free will choice. I made that choice, and God let me do it, and it led me down a painful path. But then I had to, at some point, make the decision, now what do I do with it? And if I did nothing, Chris died for nothing, and then I believe that Satan wins. So if I do something and I glorify God with it, then that, to me, is, is where my comfort and my peace come from. So now I do get to minister to others because of the choices that I made, because of God allowed me to make those choices, and I had to suffer the pain of it. I do share with people now why it's important to be married, why it's important to have a will, why it's important to do these things. And I honestly think that if, if I hadn't lived it, that I probably couldn't be who I am today and minister to the people that I'm able to minister from, because 
I even did some prison ministry after Chris died. And when I went into that prison, the only reason I think they were willing to listen to me, because when I walked in initially, they're all kind of looking at me like, who are you? And you don't know us. You don't know how we feel and what we've been through until I started to tell my story. And I would say, I'm not telling you my story so you'll feel sorry for me. I'm telling you my story so that you'll realize I relate to you more than you think. And then I could see their body language change. And so for me, that's somewhat how I don't necessarily, I don't justify my actions, but I say, because of that free will, I made mistakes. It led me to pain. And because of God's mercy, I use that now. Marianne, that, yes, that is so beautifully spoken. And God does take the chaos, junk, and mess of our life. We all have backstories that none of us want to report or boast about. But God can take that. I mean, we all, as in the human race, are, are broken people. And God can take those times right. and change it, like you said, for his That's, glory. I love the way you put that. It's forgiveness and mercy. Yes. And I am definitely not proud of the choices that I've made, but boy, did I learn from them, and and boy, am I glad that I have been forgiven, and he showed me mercy, and now I can change, and I always tell people, I'm not a lot people up and throw away the key. I truly believe in rehabilitation, but I also believe in consequences, so I'm the girl. I had to live through the consequences to my choices, which led me down a painful path, so I believe others have to suffer their consequence. And, oh, by the way, while you're doing that, I hope that you'll accept the rehabilitation that's being offered to you. Well, we talk about Marcy's Law, which was birthed out of a horrible crime that took place in California. You want to give us a little bit of the history of this particular law? I, I do. So there was a family in California, and Marcy, the law is named after her, of course, and she was dating a guy who ultimately ended up stalking and killing her. Within days later, the mother is walking into the supermarket and apparently comes face to face with the person who murdered her daughter, not knowing that he had been released. And so this family did what I say is so important, and they gave their pain and suffering a purpose. And they took that and decided to fight for victims' rights and fight for notification and fight for a voice because they were thrown into a situation that um, most never have to deal with. And um, they realized at that point that it was a little unfair. And I mean, Marianne, it was less than a week after they put their daughter yes. in the grave. They're in a supermarket to get a loaf of bread or whatever, and they run into the person at the store who murdered their daughter. And had no idea that he was out. And do you know how date not only is that shocking for them, but it also could be dangerous for them. Yes. Because imagine, because he could afford to post bail, and I, I get that that's a constitutional right. But all we're asking for is notification. And most times, you know, that happens, but it doesn't always. And we want to be prepared for the few times that it doesn't. And so when some people say, well, we're already doing that, you know, yes, and thank the Lord that we are. But at the same time, we want to make sure that something like that never happens in our state. Tell us about the Crime Victims Bill of Rights in 1998. Is that the Marcy Bill that we're talking about? No, not then. So Tennessee has passed a bill for the constitutional rights for victims. Wonderful. That means our state is already kind of ahead of the game. But now as I look at that and Marcy's Law comes in and they look at that, 
they realize it's not as strong as it should be. What I mean by that is certain things like the words shall and may, um, there's a big difference in those two little words. And so if you say that they may do this, which the Constitution says, it kind of just is more suggestive. We want to change those words to shall so that it says that it must happen. Notification must happen. That's one of the pieces of Marcy's Law is that notification is mandated. And because, you know, oftentimes there's a lot of talk between the prosecutor side and the defense to where they may make a deal and the judge may agree with it and the victim's not there, but they just go ahead and move forward. We want the judge to kind of stop and say, has the victim been notified? And if we require that instead of suggest that, that's what will happen. And I think you're also, as a victim, able to hopefully be the face and the voice of that deceased loved one when it comes to standing in court to represent that life that has no voice anymore. Well, and even victims, um, survivors, as we like to call them, um, yes, to provide a voice in court, because right now that voice is only allowed to be heard in the sentencing phase. Well, we believe that the victim should have the right to be heard during the trial. And the other side will say to you, well, that's not fair to the offender because the jury may feel sorry for the victim and then they may not be as fair on the offender. If you want the jury to understand the truth and the whole truth, why in the world would we not agree that the victim's statement is a necessary part of that situation? Are there financial benefits for victims through Marcy's Law in lieu of wills, life insurance benefits? You know, based on all that I've seen, we're not talking about those financial benefits. Now, I will say there is a portion in it that's going to um, add that these things can happen. These, These things are constitutionally required in a timely way. Now, you and I both know that if somebody doesn't have anything, it's hard You still can't get anything out of them. But at the same time, we're suggesting that all of these matters should be done in a timely manner. They shouldn't drag this out for years and years. And so giving victims their rights in a timely fashion is one thing. Mandating that their voice should be allowed to be heard. Mandating that notification is definitely important. And then, oh, by the way, for someone like me, suggesting that Now, a victim can also include a person who lives with someone who has been victimized or murdered. You know, that can mean several things, but that was important for me at that time because Chris' family lived out of state, and they weren't always able to come to the court dates. Well, I was at every single one. But then at some point in our life, and I believe people handle grief in different ways, his mother was very grief-stricken. And just decided that she wanted to be the one with access to the information and asked that I not be given information. It caught me off guard. It caught the DAs off guard. But she had the right to request that. And so I want the family to continue to receive those benefits. But I do think it's important for people that are loving and living and sharing life with someone that they, too, have access to that information. And if there's ever any confusion, the judge has total discretion over deciding who that person is or if that's even possible. No one gets to just stand up and say, it's me. If there's confusion, the DA can ask the judge to clarify. 
Well, I know a handful of states have already passed Marcy's Law in their states after California. Where does Marcy's Law stand in Tennessee today? So this is this is an, inter- an interesting year, and our hope to, to have a constitutional amendment, you have to pass a bill in two general assemblies. And each general assembly has two years, and then it has to be on a gubernatorial ballot. So for us, we're in the second year of a general assembly. That means it has to pass this year. It has to pass the next year or the year after in order to make the 2022 ballot for the people to then have a say. Keep in mind, with COVID-19 happening, the General Assembly, they're in recess right now, and when they come back, they'll either come back and hear everything or they'll only come back and hear budget items and COVID-19 items. And so our hope is that they'll come back and consider Marcy's Law this year so that we can be on the ballot in 2022 if all goes well. Because if we don't get it passed this year, then we have to wait until 2026. And we really, really think that victims deserve it to happen as soon as possible. It has to pass the General Assembly these two times and then on the next governor ballot. Correct. Then it will be available for voters. Either 2022 or 2026. And we're really fighting hard for 2022. So right now, Marianne, what should our listeners do in light of this? Contact our representatives? Yes, contact your state representatives, your state senators, the governor's office, and then I would encourage people to go to um, Marcy's Law for Tennessee and look at the website and the Facebook and, and like our page because we constantly are sharing stories on there, and I really think that it's important for people to understand what victims go through um, because you never know when you're going to be thrown into a situation, and for me, I always say I hate that I waited for something to happen to me until I got involved, because when it happened, I was so confused. And so the more we know, the more we can help others. And yeah. then in the sad instance that it happens to us, then you'll be more informed already. Over the last decade, you have strongly advocated for victims' rights. What have you learned, Marianne, most about this process? It's very lengthy. It took me two years before our trial ever started. So you have to be prepared that it's going to take a lot of time. Um, you have to let the DAs do their job at the same time while you want to receive the information. And you and you can't let the anger and emotion take over. So you have to go through the grief process and not live in one stage. That's the biggest takeaway that I had. If you live in anger, it'll hurt you more than it'll help you. Yeah. Are there any stories uh, that you've come across from other victims in Tennessee who have helped inspire you to stay the course for victims' rights? Oh, all the time. And now that I've taken this job, I'm hearing more from them. I just talked to a girl last week, and now she's on with us advocating as hard as I am. And she was from West Tennessee and actually was kidnapped. And she now lives in East Tennessee, but she's become a strong voice for us as well as a person who was kidnapped and scared and just traumatized. And so I meet incredible, strong people all the time who give their pain a purpose every day, and they are happy to be a part of Marcy's Law and glad to know that people are willing to come in here and self-fund this and do what needs to be done to stand up for victims. I always say being a voice for the voiceless. Well, for the states that have already passed Marcy's Law, what reports are you hearing on the impact it's having for victims' rights in those particular states? You know what? The victims are happy that it's there. So many victims, and like me, it doesn't benefit us now, and and, and that's fine. We're 
happy to be a part of something that's going to help someone moving forward. And then we're able to help people moving forward. But um, I think that it strengthens them. It makes them feel better to know that they have a voice in the process that's considered and taken serious. Because when someone passes away and you're told they're gone, now the offender has the right for this and the offender has the right for that. And when the offender's arrested, He's read his rights, he or she. No one does that for us. And so this makes them feel better because now someone's going to tell them what their rights are. If they're not given that same courtesy that the offender is given, then we have a little bit. The Constitution holds up a lot stronger in court than a statutory law does. Okay, uh, Marianne, I know listeners are going to want to stay updated on this issue, on the Marcy's Law for Tennessee. Is there a Facebook web page? What can people do to stay engaged? Yes, if they will just go to Facebook and Twitter or anything, just look at look up Marcy's Law for Tennessee. And then, of course, my name's Marianne Dunavant, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E-D-U-N-A-V-A-N-T. And I would love to get to know any victims who are out there who feel like they want a stronger voice or they want to give their pain a purpose. I would hope that they would reach out and talk to me and be an advocate for Marcy's Law for Tennessee. Marianne Dunham, thank you so much for what you're doing to help victims and their rights. Matter of fact, let's mention that this week is Victims' Rights Week. Is that correct? It is. You know, it's a week that we take where we come together and we make sure that we remember that rights for victims matter. And like for the people who have never been victimized, sometimes we forget that other people are going through this. So this is just that reminder that we live with the pain every single day. The pain never goes away. You just learn how to live with it. Well, your statement, pain with a purpose, making a purpose out of your pain, that's powerful. Thank you so much for the time you've invested and the time you've shared. We're going to have to keep in touch with you and do future programs. As you see this move into new arenas and it grows in momentum, will you come back and tell us about it? I would love to, and and I'm very grateful that you give us the opportunity to share because I do believe it's important. So thank you for that. Well, I agree with you, Mary, and thank you so much for taking time with Bot Radio Network this afternoon. Have a great day, and thank you. Friends, our guest today, Marianne Dunavent. She is the Victim Outreach Director for Marcy's Law for Tennessee. Please go to the website, marcyslawfortn.com, marcyslawfortn.com for more details. Stay informed about this issue. I'm Byron Tyler. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 